Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spastiano, joined, as always, by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? You know, Dan, I, I, I try to, because we haven't spoken about it in a bit, I, I recently tried to resurrect my hideous dating life. So uh, I, went on a couple, I went on a couple of dating websites, and I, I seemed to have made a connection with this one young lady, and she told me, come on over, there's nobody home. And I went over, and guess what? There was nobody home. Back to the drawing board. Oh, no. No respect, Benny. No respect at all. Well, you know, we uh, t- today's episode, we've got a special guest. This man is a uh, former referee, author. We've just, just in the research, uh, he's raised the hand of countless Hall of Famers and legends. This is uh, Dave Dwinnell. Dave, thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing just great, and I want to thank you for your invitation to be on your show, and I really, really enjoy your following your website. Well, thank you. It's uh, always nice to have that kind of connection. We're going to get right into it. Um, we were talking a bit before we recorded. You got plenty of stories. Benny, first questions to you. Dave, I wanted to start with uh, how it all started. Um, I know in my case, Christmas 1967, I was 12. I got a 12-inch Hitachi black and white TV, brought it up to my room, started fiddling with it. And, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of stations back in 1967, but I found Channel 47, WNJU, from Newark, New Jersey. And I saw this thing on Saturday night that said Lucha Libre. And it was uh, Capital Wrestling from Washington, D.C., Ray Morgan. And um, I was immediately transfixed by Bruno San Martino, who 53 years later, is still my hero, hero and role model. So I understand, you know, based on your book, you're a little bit, a few years behind me, uh, 1959, but still with Capital Wrestling and Ray Morgan. Was there anybody in particular? I know Antonino Rocco was a big star back then. Were you more uh, hooked by the whole program itself, or was there any one wrestler? Well, to be honest with you, um, I was kind of enamored by all the characters that came out in 1959. There were a number of them. This is prior, just prior to Bruno, obviously, coming in. Um, There were people like Cowboy Bob Ellis, um, Chief Bigheart, who did the war dance and the tomahawk chop, Haystack Calhoun, who would hit people with his um, horseshoe. Yeah, people like Bobo Brazil with the headbutt, Dr. Jerry Graham, who looked like he just come out of a sanitarium someplace, the Beast. Uh, and my brother's favorite, Killer Kowalski. Uh, we actually started a little wrestling league on our front lawn, and I would imitate the face in some of the matches. My brother would imitate the face in other matches. And uh, I, I just kind of like, uh, when, when I started watching television, there were like three or four channels, and I really didn't find anything that I, I really enjoyed on TV until I saw these two guys beating the crap out of each other in the middle of a ring. And I said, you know, this looks pretty good. And, and that's kind of like my first um, introduction to the sport, which was more sport, obviously, than uh, and less uh, showbiz. We all, we all thought it was real back then. So, Dave, uh, you if I got the story right here, you were actually watching wrestling with some of your buddies, and you made a comment about one of the referees not being very competent. 
And I, I believe one of your friends said, well, do you think you could do better than that? And you said, well, yeah, I can. And, and that's how you got started. Do I have that story right? So how did, where did it go from there? Well, we were watching we were watching wrestling, and I said, gee, the referee's done a very good job. He says, yeah, you could do a better job. I said, probably. He said, well, <laughs> why don't you? It was, it was through the challenge of a friend. I said, you know what? What have I got to lose? So next, next day, I started looking around for a number for the WWF. Couldn't find one. Finally found out it was Capital Wrestling. Uh, after 27 phone calls to Capital Wrestling, someone answered the phone, and he made... Marlon Brando and the Godfather sound like a choir girl. I get this guy on the phone, and he goes, I said, is this Capital Wrestling? And he goes, who wants to know? I said, my name is David Dwinnett. What do you want? I said, well, I'd like to be one of your referees. We don't need any. I said, well, can I send your resume? Look, at kid, don't send me any gifts. It's still going to be no. And the guy hangs up, and I'm going, hmm, that didn't go so well. So I tried to get an address where they were located. And I found an address for, for a um, midtown Manhattan. And I said I was working at the Trade Center at the time. So at lunchtime, I'd go up for about two weeks and see if I could find anybody coming out of the um, Holland Hotel. It was the Holland Hotel. Uh, I didn't realize at the time that it was just a front, that they only used it when they came to the garden. So after two weeks, the um, doorman comes out and he says, look, what are you, a cop? Um, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, a a cop, a a private detective, or just a nut. And I said, I'm looking for somebody from the uh, Capitol Wrestling, and they go, they're only here once a month for a couple days, so get lost. So I pretty much gave up after that, and then I found out that the WWF, or WWF, yeah, WWF at that time had to use state officials. And I happened to meet someone who could make a connection for me, and um, so I ended up applying, and I had the right connections, and I had had a background in coaching and, and, and as an athletic director. It was my first job out of school, and uh, I got an application. I sent 50 bucks in, which said non-refundable, and they sent me a license, and I didn't work. So they were right around the corner from the trade center, so I went over, and the second time I went, uh, I kind of spoke a bit loud and the chairman of the athletic commission, which was Jack Prendeville at the time, came out and wanted to know what was going on. And he said, okay, we'll give you a shot in a couple of weeks. So um, I ended up with a license, with a an assignment at the Westchester County Center in front of uh, 5,500 people, um, never having stepped foot in a ring, never talked to a wrestler, didn't know if it was fake or real. I didn't know if they would end up hurting me if they didn't like me. So I moseyed on over to the uh, Westchester County Center in 1982, just shortly after Christmas, not knowing uh, what was going to happen. But that's basically how I ended up with the license, through a little bit of luck. That's hilarious. Just curious, how much, uh, what was the licensing fee back then? For 50 bucks, non-refund. And they kept saying non-refundable. They weren't getting it, I wasn't getting it back if I didn't work. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, you know, uh, according to the notes I have, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you, you mentioned going down to the Westchester County Center. Your first match that you worked as an official was between Johnny Rods and Eddie Gilbert. Is that correct? That's or do correct. you remember? Newcomer, oh, do I remember it? No one forgets their first match. Um, uh, 
Eddie Gilbert was 21 years old at the time. I didn't know really who he was, and um, he wasn't too familiar. He just come into the um, came from a great wrestling family, as you know. Right. And he was wrestling Johnny. So the promoter was uh, Arnold Scullin. And now the Westchester County Center was about 15 minutes from where I lived, so I got mo- many of the shows over there almost every other month. They appeared every month, and I got about every other show. And it was run by Arnold Scullin and his wife Betty. And I used to see Arnold at this coffee shop where he sold cigars because Arnold was always smoking cigars. And I showed up at the county center with, with my little suitcase. I never brought gym bags. And Arnie goes, oh, are you going on vacation, Dave? I said, no, I'm one of your referees. And he looked really surprised. <laughs> and um, he came up to me a little later in the evening and said, you better go up and talk to Rod. Uh, it's getting kind of late. And you have the first match with him and, and Gilbert. So I'm walking up the stairs at the county center to go to the Heels locker room, and I'm going, what do I talk to Rods about? The weather? How's the wife and family? Is wrestling real? You know, I, you know so I, I had no idea. Um, all I knew was I really wanted to be involved. I loved the sport. I knew I wasn't going to be a wrestler, and I really wanted to be involved. And I said, well, maybe it'll be one and out, but I can at least say I did it. And um, thank God for Johnny Rods. And by the way, Dave, uh, I did speak with, not speak with, but through Messenger on uh, on Facebook, and he sends his regards. I told him that you were going to be a guest. We're trying to make, hopefully get him uh, as a guest one of these days. But, you know, I in my mind, when I read that in your book, and I they're like, who better than Johnny Rods? And what would have happened if it was somebody who was like not as, co- you know, not as uh, helpful as Johnny Rods? What would have happened? You might have been one and done. I would not have been on the show tonight, that's for sure, probably. Um, I mean, I didn't even know which ropes to climb through. I'm walking to the ring, and I'm going, do I go through the top and middle or middle and bottom? I mean, that's where are the stairs? Do I have to jump up or are there stairs? You know, I really was, but, you know, again, I said to myself, be under control, don't look like a jerk, and Thank God, as I mentioned, for Johnny Rods. First of all, Johnny was probably the best tweener to ever work. Uh, he could go heel or face. He was a very good friend of Vince Sr., and Vince used to have Johnny break in new talent like Eddie Gilbert uh, and then report to Vince, hey, he can work, he can't work, um, he should be a face, he should be a heel. Uh, so when I walked in the locker room, Johnny looked at my face. He goes, first match, kid? I go, oh, yeah. He goes, come on over, let's talk about our match. He talked about our match, not his match, our match. And we discussed things. He wanted me to be involved in the match. We was going to be pushing and shoving. I disqualify him at the end, and I threaten him with a fine from the commission. And he pushes me, I push him, and I'm going to fine you. He got me involved in the match, uh, which I thought was fantastic. And, again, made me feel a lot more comfortable uh, going into the ring, knowing that I had an ally. And he said, look, if you get lost, I'll I'll, I'll help you out. So that was a tremendous um, help to me. And I I can't speak highly enough of Johnny, one of the greatest guys in the business, my mentor. And maybe we get into that a little bit later when I worked with the NCW. But... um, just a wonderful person and um, a great worker. I mean, he could make guys that were half as half as good as him look good. You know, if if I can kind of get off topic for a little a second, I want you to expand on that because we've had a lot of wrestlers on the show since Benny and I started doing this. You're the first official. When you say he can work, 
kind of walk us through or put us in the mindset of what it's like as an official interacting with someone who can be the ring general versus someone who might not know what they're doing or how to, how to talk or interact with you. Well, what I was referring to about Johnny working, uh, uh, if sometime you'll get a weak worker who, who just is not comfortable working or maybe is just not up to snuff with some of the other workers, and Johnny could, could sell them. He could make them look good. And um, he, he, he would, you know, by taking really good bumps off the guy, by, by um, kind of putting him over, uh, and, of course, referees in those days, I think, you know, I don't know because I, I can't compare it. I, I don't referee today. But uh, referees ha- had to add legitimacy to it because kayfabe was in full full um, swing back then. And referees, Johnny taught me that the referee is the ring general, that you take charge of the match to add legitimacy to it. You don't favor the face. You don't favor the heels. You get down on your belly and you put your face where the shoulders are. I mean, if you look at some referees, they're on the other side of the ring, bouncing up and down, counting, and couldn't possibly see if the shoulders are pinned. So Johnny gave me um, a a, a crash course in 101 uh, refereeing, and he made me a much better referee than I would have ever been. Because back in those days, there were no schools. You know, there there were no really no wrestling schools. Referees either were friendly with the promoter or maybe they had in New York, there was several second generation wrestlers. So I was kind of an unusual uh, entity as a referee, but I was always open to learning more and more from the senior, from the senior referees, guys like Dick Kroll, my great friend, Billy Caputo, who passed away not too long ago. Um, I I was fortunate to have friends who really, um, took me under their wing and, and helped me in, in, in those early days. And I'll always be appreciative of that. I don't know if that answers your question or not. No, it, it does. So. Absolutely. Uh, Benny going on, uh, what we were talking about before the show and, and the buildup here, y- you said other than a fishy, um, other than your connections to the business, you and Dave have kind of a, another career path that overlapped ask him uh, i want you to ask him about that because that was a yeah. really interesting so, topic uh, yeah i mean i'm in the very i'm in the victory lap of my business career I'm, i plan on retiring by my next birthday so i got literally like less than less than 11 months but you know in the course of my career i've been my some of my titles were accountant financial analyst business manager controller and like i said i'm, I'm in the home stretch i can't wait so I can just do this and do some writing. Um, Dave, you worked actually worked on Wall Street um, for a bit, and then you were also the receiver of taxes. Uh, is it was it for Ardsley Township? It was the town of Greenberg. Actually, I never refereed full time, but I did referee a lot of matches each and every year because I, I ended up working a lot with the independents. Now. Um, when I lived in Ardsley, I had started out after college as a, as a teacher in, in, in the private school system and wasn't making a lot of money, especially not to live outside of New York City. So uh, I got a job. I answered a blind ad and got a job at the Trade Center. Um, I worked for the controller of a, of a very large architectural and engineering firm. I did some accounting work, but I also um, was office manager and helped out in personnel. Uh, and then after doing that for about four years, 
I ended four or five years. I ended up uh, working for the town of Greenberg, which is one of the largest towns in New York State. Uh, they needed someone to manage their tax office. Uh, the, the, the receiver of taxes, the elected receiver, uh, was a part-time position, and so they brought me in to kind of straighten out the office, and I actually became the elected receiver for about the last 11 years. I worked there 23 years, and I became the elected receiver. And we collected about a half a billion dollars in taxes wow. for 10 school districts, county, the county tax, the town tax, and I also had to foreclose on properties, unfortunately. So it was a, you know, but I never refereed full-time. Um, again, I, I, I worked evenings, summers. I had the kind of a job that I could get away uh, weekends or two or three days if I wanted to go on a road with an independent. And um, But at one time I was considering doing it full time, and I talked to the chief, uh, this is back in the 80s probably, and I said, hey, chief, I heard you might be looking for some full-time referees. And the chief looked down at me. We're on a runway. I'll never forget it. And I saw a coliseum. I said, what do you think? He goes, you got a good job? I go, yeah. You got a pension? Yeah. You got medical benefits? Yeah. What are you, nuts? <laughs> you know, he said, what are you, crazy? He goes, how often do you referee? I, I said maybe, um, I don't know, three or four, at the beginning. It was like maybe three, three, maybe four times a month. He goes, what's wrong with that? Just keep doing what you're doing and, and doing what you love, refereeing on the side. And uh, so I took his advice, and I never really wanted after that to um, – pursue a career that would um, be full-time as a referee. So I always had what I would guess you'd call a legitimate job. And, and a receiver of taxes was actually more, uh, was probably more dangerous than um, refereeing, taking people's money. <laughs> now, there was a, a unique person who was on that uh, tax roll. <laughs> to say the least. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. So somebody with a connection that our our fans might appreciate. Well, there were three people from the there were three people connected oh. with pro wrestling that I collected their taxes. I collected um, Arnold Scolan. I collected Paul Heyman's parents, who technically lived in Scarsdale but were paid taxes to the town of Greenberg. And the third person was the um, always. Um, unpredictable Freddie Blassie, uh, who I early on became really friendly with. That's um, crazy. Could I mention the first time I of met course. Freddie? It's, it's a pretty funny story. I had always wanted to meet him. Uh, the WWF in those days was not the uh, promotion you see today. Many of the guys had other jobs, and they would do a circuit that go from, um, let's see, Washington to Baltimore to Philly, to New York, to White Plains, to, to Connecticut, to Massachusetts, Boston Garden, up to Maine. And in between, I wanted to get shows on high schools. They would have shows on high schools, on colleges, uh, small arenas. Well, first time I worked with Freddie was in Bedford-Stuyvesant in New York um, back in the 80s. And it was at an old Catholic high school. And... Um, I started talking and became friendly with Freddie during the intermission. I went over and I said, Freddie, and we, we started uh, BSing a little bit. And I said, Freddie, I, I would always say, Freddie, I heard that Gorgeous George, despite his appearance, was a tough wrestler. Holy shit, Dave. He didn't know the difference between a toenail and a toehold. There was no wrestler who ever matched up to Freddie in the ring. 
He was the toughest, according to Freddie. So he was dressed as the Ayatollah, right? Ayatollah at the time, he was the Sheik's manager. This is shortly before, I think, the Sheik won the belt. And we get in a ring, and he looks out in the audience, and Bedford-Stuyvesant was an extremely tough area. I mean, it was really, really rugged. And he looks out in the audience, and he goes, oh, my God, Dave, look at the, the people in the audience are tougher-looking than the wrestlers. <laughs> and he was right. And then he looked up, and, and I'll never forget, I can't laugh in a ring, obviously. So I look up, and there's a man about 360 pounds, if not more, sitting on two um, chairs in the balcony with a little woodblock between them. And Freddie looks up. Now, we used to get paid according to the number of people who would show up at an event. If you had 500, it was a certain amount of money. If you had 5,000 or 25,000, it was a lot more. So Freddie looks up, and we're in the ring, and, and he's probably threatening to hit me with the cane if I don't shut up. Um, he looks up and sees this guy in two seats, and he goes, Dave, check with Skull, and will you, when you go back to the locker room, tell Skull to go up there and make sure that guy bought two tickets because <laughs> another ticket could throw us into the next page category. <laughs> And I said, Freddie, we'll be we'll be lucky if the balcony doesn't collapse. He says, What the hell are we here? We ain't sitting under there as long as we get paid. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he would cool. he would constantly crack me up in the ring. I mean, he just he, he was never off stage. He just was never ever off stage. But I guess you wanted me to speak about the time he came into the tax office. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I hope I'm not talking too much here. You know. No, that's why you're here. <laughs> yeah, you're you're the one telling the stories. Well, um, I had a new employee in the tax office, and one day Freddie comes in, and he's got the cane, and he's banging on the counter, and he yells, "Where's the, where's the supervisor?" And our supervisor is equivalent of mayor of the town. Where's the supervisor's office? Where's the supervisor's office? I'm gonna go in and body slam him on his desk. And I said, oh, my God, I didn't, I didn't hear. I, I heard Freddie talk, and my, the lady, come, uh, my employee, comes running in and goes, Mr. Dwinella, there's a crazy man in, in the tax office. I said, that's not a crazy man. That's Freddie. Uh, I know him well. I work with him a lot. And she goes, you do? I said, yeah, tell him to bring him in my office. So Freddie came in the office. I said, what's the matter, Freddie? He goes, um, he goes I have wild cats on my front yard, and um, – the supervisor told me he'd get rid of him two weeks ago, and he didn't. Where's his office? I'm going to body slam him on it. I said, Freddie, if you body slam the supervisor on his desk, I'll have to call the cops. He goes, shit, you won't be calling the cops. You'll be calling the ambulance. <laughs> Carter. I said, Freddie, I'll take, I'll take care of you, Wildcat. So I called the animal warden, uh, the animal warden, and he took care of Freddie's cats, but Freddie would always come in the office and go, Dave, how can I get my taxes lowered? And I'd always tell him the same thing, move out of Westchester. But right, that's my story. Um, that I, I saved the supervisor of Greenberg's life. <laughs> yeah. You know, circling back for a second, you were talking about the WWF at the time. Uh, one of the stories in your book, you talk about the, uh, you think it was your third or fourth show at the Wakefield Forum. You actually went there thinking it was a WWF show, but it turns out it was just an uh, independent promotion. It was well, uh, my, go ahead. the Wakefield Forum in the Bronx. Right. That's the one. Well, my first two shows had been for the WWF in, in the county center, and they had replaced the, they had replaced the um, chairman of the athletic commission with 
John Branca, Ralph Branca's brother. Um, and uh, I had friends of John, and I said, you know, I'd like to have a shot at um, refereeing. And he goes, I'll watch you at the county center. If you can handle yourself, we'll use you, Dave, if you can. I said, that's all I want. He saw me work, and he said, Dave, you're going to work. So I'm looking forward to my third assignment. Now, I've been at the prestigious county center, 5,000 people, nice pay night. So I get a call, and it says, Dave, I know it's short notice, but could you go up to the Wakefield Forum in the Bronx on a Saturday night and referee a show up there? You'll be the only ref. And I'm going, oh, my God, the only ref on a WWF show? They must have been really impressed with me. So now my head is thinking, wow, this is fantastic. I wonder if it's like the Montreal Forum. Well, I drive to the Wakefield Forum in the Bronx, and um, I drove by it four times because all, all, almost all the letters on the marquee were missing. There's burnt-out cars. There's people begging in the street. And they had no parking lot, so I had to park across the street in the A&P lot. And um, I said, how the heck can the WWF be running in a place like this? I had never heard the words independent promotion before that night. And so I, I, I'm on an independent promotion. And I, those were two new words added to my wrestling vocabulary. And so I walk in and I go, wow, there's 75 men with 74 drinking out of brown paper bags. And uh, I don't speak Spanish, and most of the rest is Spanish-speaking. And uh, the promoter says, oh, I'm so glad you're here. The last referee never showed up. And I said, wow, he must have either been very bright or was mugged and never was to be heard from again. So, you know, I went in the ring for the first match, and unfortunately it was a match in which there was a fellow and his brother or cousin who were tag-teaming and they were, the, they were the faces. And he had just come out of the hospital with a groin injury. And part of the, sh- part of the show was they, they were, the, the heels were going to distract me, and the, the other heel was going to work on the guy's groin. Well, this did not go over with this local boy hero from the neighborhood. So people started throwing all kinds of objects at me because after two times of not seeing this, they were really angry and upset. Well, I told the um, timekeeper to announce that we were going to stop the show, and that only made him angrier and threw more. So then I'm looking down. There's a man screaming and yelling, pointing at me, and I noticed he had a handle of a gun sticking out of his pocket. And I'm going, no, I'm I'm not going to spend my last few moments on Earth looking at uh, 74 people drinking out of brown paper bags. So I told the promoter, to, I, I told the timekeeper, get the promoter out here now, or I'm I'm out of here. So I told him, you got to take the gun away from him. I said, uh, you know, he says, no, nah, he's not dangerous. I know the guy. I said, no, no, that's not good enough for me. Uh, I understand. So we took the gun away and uh, had a look at the guy with his evil eye the rest of the night. And, well, the show ended, and um, I went to get my car in the parking lot, and it was a huge, uh, it was fenced in with barbed wire on the top of the fence. Evidently, someone told me they closed at 12. Well, they closed at 11. So there's my car in the lot, and I can't get in. So I went back to the promoter. I said, what do I do? He said, go ahead back out there, and I did. And he sent a guy out with these huge clippers, cut the um, cut the uh, padlock off the fence. And I, before I left, I said, what's that popping I hear? He goes, well, it's gunfire, but not to worry. It's like three blocks away. It's okay. <laughs> and I got home, and I found out instead of making the several hundred I made at the county center, I made 75 bucks. I said, somebody stole my money. And I went to the commission. I said, oh, no, that's what you get for a uh, for a show um, 
you know, a, a, a small show with only a small crowd. So that was my ex- first experience with the indie promotions. Crazy. One Dave, I'll forget, huh? at what point did you actually, you know, you the first time you went in the ring with Johnny Rise and, and Eddie Gilbert, you had never been in the ring before. And, I mean, thankfully you had Johnny to, to you know, to guide you through it. At what point when you were refereeing, like at what, like how many months or how many matches did you start to feel a little bit more comfortable in the ring that you knew what you were doing? Um, well, I would, I would say, um, you learn quickly after, um, after, after a few matches, I, 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 well, I had watched before my first show, I watched every VHS tape known to mankind on wrestling. And I, focused in on the refs because I felt the most important thing for me was position in the ring, you know, was, was to be in the right position in the ring. So after the first match, I, I learned a, a very, um, a very sharp lesson. And that was, uh, get large wrestling knee pads for under your black pants because my knees had burn marks on them for about a week. Um, because the mats in those days were not what they were today. They were actually, um, canvas tied and they would stop moving around during a match and when you were sliding on them which i like to do a lot i used to like to slide uh for the pin uh you would actually burn you could burn your burn your knees without so i would say after three or four matches i really felt comfortable because of the fact that i had learned the most important thing and that was how to maneuver in the ring and where to stand so i didn't get in their way they weren't getting in my way um, I, um, you know, it, it, it became, it, it, plus I got to feel more comfortable with the wrestlers after having worked with them. I realized they were like me. They were just regular people who had a job to do. And as Johnny had often told me, uh, it takes three to make a match. Uh, a bad ref can kill a good match and a good ref can save a bad match. And, um, you know, I always, um, try to look professional in a ring and try to, give 100%. Uh, I, I realized early on, uh, maybe after seven or eight matches, or maybe even less, no one ever bought a ticket to see a ref. My job was to make them look good. Now, if I made them look good, they're going to want to work with me. And if they want to work with me, then I'll probably stick around. So that was kind of like my philosophy. But um, you're always learning. You were always learning. You know what I'm saying? You, 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 you were always... Um, learning. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. Johnny Rods had told me, uh, if someone's got someone in a submission, don't call for the bell too soon. Let them work the hold. Okay. So don't call for the bell. All right. Um, it was big John Studd against chief Jay Strongbow and Strongbow was old at the time on, it was in his last few matches and Studd was, Studd had him in a bear hug. And I said, do you give up chief? And he goes, Oh, and he didn't say, I give up. So I'm letting Stud work. And I, I said it a couple times. And finally, after the third time, the chief looks down and he goes, will you ring the goddamn bell? This guy's killing me. What, what are you, a masochist? <laughs> goddamn bell. So you kind of learn. See, I didn't realize that old timers like the chief would not want to say, I submit. They want me to call a bell to save him from further punishment. So you were kind of like always learning something new. There was always something that you could pick up that maybe you hadn't in a previous match. 
Gotcha. Um, Dave, in 1983, you started working for Northeast Championship Wrestling, NCW. And once again, you got to work with Johnny Rods. And you, you actually, you read the exact quote that about the good ref can save a bad match and a bad ref can kill a good match. Um, you, This was about a 10-year gig that you got a lot yeah. of work from. Um, can you talk about this promotion? I know it's not in, in, in existence anymore, but didn't another uh, derivation of it came up, uh, come into existence at a later time? Well, the original NCW was started by Tommy Jeanette. And um, he used Johnny Rods as his backroom boss and, and uh, Booker. And um, Tommy was the first. He was the original NCW. After he retired, um, they started another NCW, which is in existence today, which is not connected with the original. But Tommy was very successful because he was the first admitted. He didn't know much about wrestling, but he was a great businessman. He, he was a great a person who could organize things and do things. And um, he, he had a very slick promotion. The Indies in those days, for the most part, were much different than today. Um, today, and I'm not knocking the Indies of today, but you find them in almost every other town. Uh, back then, the Indies used a lot of top guys on top. Uh, Tommy always used people like Abdullah the Butcher, the Iron Sheik, Professor Toru Tanaka, uh, Jimmy Snooker, uh, Johnny, Axe Demolition, Bill Eady. Uh, he always used a lot of really good workers or names that maybe were with the WWF, or even some of them were still with them, but they would allow them to, to work indies in those days. And Tommy ran a first-class promotion, and I was fortunate enough through Rich Mancuso, who was on WFAN at the time, to uh, become his referee. But I would work all the matches. In those days, uh, the Indies wanted to save money, so you had to be able to work six, seven matches, maybe eight matches. And we did everything from uh, high schools, colleges, fairs. The fairs were tremendous fun. He he used people like Misty Blue and her crew, um, Little Louie, and um, the the guy that became Dink the Clown. I, I forget his other name when he was re- wrestling. Um, and we always had fun at the fairs. Um, as a matter of fact, one of my funny lines that I always use is, it was kind of sad because we were replaced on the fairs by the racing pigs because they put on five shows a day and didn't need locker rooms or showers. <laughs> and, they were better know, workers. <laughs> they were better workers. Yeah, they, they didn't get gassed. Right. They didn't blow up. But, but Tommy... Tommy used music. He had music when fans came in. He had music when they left. There were no spaces between matches, one match right after the other. And, again, he, he always used – he had the Cheetah Kid open the show, Ted Petty, who later morphed into Rocco Rock. Rocco Rock, um, yeah. He had the Cheetah Kid. He used the Cheetah's rings. In those days, a lot of promoters didn't have their own rings. Cheetah had a couple of rings. And Cheetah became one of my first friends on the independent circuit, and I was very – you know, very, very taken aback at his, at his early demise. But Tommy ran a first-class show, and it was a great 10 years working with him and, and getting to go on a road, my first time on a road. We, he'd do two or three shows on a weekend. You'd get to hang out afterwards at a bar. If you did a local show for the fire department or the police department, they'd have food and, and, and drinks and stuff for you afterwards. So, And it, it gave the local people a chance to be close to the wrestlers. They were sitting ringside. They felt like they were part of the show. It's something I will always uh, remember and always enjoy working uh, with and for, for Tommy. And, and Johnny continued to give me a great education um, 
in the business. You know, speaking of learning the business and moving the business, I don't think in in any of the 30 plus shows that Benny and I have done, we've gone an episode without mentioning Bruno San Martino. You, at one point, you actually had a chance to referee a match between Bruno and Bob Orton Jr. It was the World's Fair 1964. Um, well, it, it, yeah, go ahead. It wasn't. Uh, I met Bruno for the first time at the World's Fair as a high school student or an eighth grader. Right, right. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to imply that that, that was the date of the match. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, sorry a young referee. <laughs> Very young referee. Yeah, 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 labor yeah, labor I, laws I were a little different back then. No, <laughs> you, you first met Bruno in 1964, and then had the pleasure of refereeing a match. Uh, one, like I mentioned earlier, um, you know, the some of the imagery. It, one of the first images that comes up when we search, if you were to search your name, is you lifting Bruno's arm. I'm wondering if you have any insider stories about what it was like working with him. Uh, he comes up all the time on the show, and I, I've never heard anybody say anything bad as far as being in the ring with him. Well, he was my hero um, through high school watching wrestling and beyond. He was always someone that I felt represented the sport in the greatest of its light. And it was just someone that I really admired, um, and he had something special and when I went to the World's Fair as a, an eighth grader, um, he, he was working in one of the beer pavilions. He, he was carrying around a, a quarter keg of beer on each shoulder. And I waited until everyone left, and I went up to him, and I just and, and he talked to me for about seven, eight, nine minutes. And I, and I was so grateful because he, he didn't have to spend that kind of time with me. And I didn't have a pen and paper, and I said, oh, my God, I'll never have another opportunity to get his autograph. How could I not have pen and paper? Um and then, lo and behold, there I am, uh, maybe 20, I don't know, 20 years later, something like that. Um, I find myself at the county center. He, he was in retirement, basically, at the time, but he came out. He, he was friends with Skolan, and Skolan was running the show, Arnie. So Bruno, I think, was either replacing his son on the show or, or maybe a sick wrestler. So when I saw that he was on the card, he wasn't originally scheduled to be. It's the only time I ever went up to the state commission. I said, please, could I do that match? I, I want to do that match. Please, could I be assigned that match? I asked the other referee. I said, would you mind? He goes, no, not at all. I've worked with Bruno. So I was given the match, and I said, oh, my God, i got, I got to get a picture of this. So I went out my street clothes into the audience, and it was a, there were no cameras like you have today with the cell phones and all of that. So I went out, and this guy had a zoom lens camera. He was sitting in the second or third row, and I said, gee, would you do me a favor? Bruno wins. Will you take a picture? And he said, Absolutely. So what happened was um, I get in a ring, and Bruno wins by a, by a count-out, um, and he's on the wrong side of the ring with me. And I'm raising his hand, and I, I, I kind of pony, ponying him, dog and ponied him around on the other side of the ring and grabbed him and, and walked him all the way around the other side of the ring and said, are we being televised? I didn't think this was TV. I said, never mind, I'll tell you in the locker room. Just come with me. And we walked over, and I got my um, his hand up and posed for the camera, we got back in a locker room, and I said to him, I said, uh, you know, this is what I wanted. This is why I did that. And he started laughing, and he, and he probably thought I was as big a, a fan as I was a, a referee. And for that match, I probably was. But Absolutely. I did, did get the picture, and 25 years later, I had him sign it at a Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame 
uh, dinner up in Amsterdam, New York. Um, I brought the picture and I asked him if he would sign it, and he, he got a kick out of it. And he, I mentioned about the beer kegs, and he told me um, he still had marks on his shoulders from carrying those damn things around. That's crazy. Fair. So, but what a wonderful man. I mean, I don't know if you ever heard this story or not, but I believe it. Uh, he would go into a restaurant and he loved to have a glass of wine at dinner. He wouldn't have a drink if there was any kids in a restaurant. He wouldn't touch alcohol. He didn't yeah, I, I've heard drink. that. If, if there was any fans, they didn't. he didn't want any fans to ever see him uh, drink beer or wine or anything like that. He was that conscious of his public image. Yeah, and he always... he. I had an opportunity. I was working for Dino Sano in, in Pittsburgh, and Bruno was the announcer. And we went out for dinner after, and I got to sit next to Bruno. And he gave me a piece of advice that I took with me for the rest of my career. And he looked at me, and he said, uh, Dave, he goes, um, whether there's five people at the show, 50 people, 500 or 500,000, he goes, you always give them the best. You always work as hard as you can. Because some of these people may have saved up nickels, dimes, and quarters for weeks to come and see you perform. And you owe it to yourself and you owe it to them to give the best. And that was his philosophy. It didn't make any difference how many people were in the audience. You always give your best because these people <laughs> are true fans and, 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 and they're supporting you and you have to support them. And, and I'll never forget that. And, and that's a sign of a person who never forgot his humble beginnings. Right. Especially, I mean, we, we've talked about it on the show before. I mean, as a child, literally hiding in the mountains from one of the most evil forces in history to, to come over here and be arguably one of the most respected athletes in, in the history of, of, of the, of the country. True. You know, you have, I mean, even non-wrestling fans loved and knew Bruno. You go to any authentic pizza or sub shop anywhere in New York, New Jersey, Philly area, they're going to have Bruno on the wall somewhere. Yep. Absolutely. absolutely. Yep. Dave, oh, in the end, just in case we run out of time, I want to make sure this story gets in, in included. One of our favorite personalities is Dominic DiNucci. Uh, Dominic has been on our, on our podcast before. We all, we all love, just like everybody loves Bruno, everybody loves Dominic too. And there was a really good story in your book where uh, I guess there was a, you guys were one wrestler short and the guy was supposed to be a, a I, I don't, I forgot the name of the mass wrestler, but I guess good old Dominic said, I'll, I'll do it. And, you know, Dominic goes out there and tries to convince everybody that uh, he's this, this mass wrestler. And, you know, Dominic had a very unique look. Um, you know, nose and all. So yeah, tell that story for everybody who's listening. That, 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 was a, that was one of my favorite stories in the whole book. Well, Dominic was one of my favorite people uh, in wrestling. Also, he would always say to me, Davey, we're going to have some fun in our match tonight. And we usually did. Um, I had a chance to go to Cherry Point, North Carolina with him very early in my career. And he brought a couple of his students, including um, Troy Ondorf, who later morphed into Shane Douglas. So I met Dom very early, and we always enjoyed working with each other. U.S. USA Pro, USA what was it? USA Pro Wrestling League, where they combined several of the leagues. You know, the NWA. Oh, the Pro Wrestling USA. Pro Wrestling USA. Yeah. And um, Dom was on the show, and it was short a couple people. And the last match came about. And they wanted to know if I would like to work under the hood. And I said, absolutely not. You tried this with me once before. You were going to put me against Kamala. And I said, no, no. 
So they said, well, we've got to get somebody. Anybody in the locker room willing to work as the um, red demon under the hood? So Dominic goes, I'll do it. So Dom puts on uh, on the mask, and, of course, the nose is sticking out. He's got this, this, the, the hairy body, very, very thin, very thin, hairy body, kind of hunched over a little bit. So I'm in the ring, and they announce the Red Demon, and everyone in the place is going wild. It's Dominic Danucci. It's Dominic <laughs> They're all Dominic Danucci. So he gets in the ring, and he says, Davey, get me the uh, microphone. I'm going, oh, no, no I, this is not good. So I got the microphone, I gave it to him, and they're screaming, it's Dominic, he goes, it's not a me, it's not a me, it's not a me, I'm the red demon, it's not a me. So I said, Dominic, I think you want to say it's not him, not it's not a me. Oh, yeah, it's right, it's not a him, it's not a me, it's the red demon, I'm going, forget it. <laughs> Just forget it, Dom. <laughs> Take the mask off, they know, they know who you are. <laughs> As Dom yeah, says, you it, can't kill a bird with, uh, was it two birds? No, one bird with two stones. Yeah, there you go. There you go. He he, he always, um, he always, um, he just was a fun guy to be around. He, he trained some really great people. He trained Mick Foley. He trained um, um, Shane Douglas and um, a, a, a really fine person and, and really fun to be around. I can't say enough nice things. One of the nicest in the business. Very good sense of humor as well. Oh, yes. Didn't take anything too, too serious. And God bless him. He's still alive. Um, and, um, you know, I met him when Bruno was inducted into the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. They also inducted Dominic, um, which is something that Bruno had hoped they would do. And um, he was as much fun then, which was probably, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe 10, 12 years ago. He was as much fun then as he was um, when I was in the ring with him. Dave, there was a there was a match in, in your book. I think it was in maybe '84. Not quite sure of the year. I might have the year wrong, but it was the USA Express, which was uh, Barry uh, Windham and Mike Rotundo against the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov. I think they called themselves the Foreign Express. Right. And uh, so, I mean, it's before the match even started. There was people were throwing garbage and stuff in the ring and. It sounded like it was pretty scary. And I guess my, my point in all of that is that, you know, back then, people still took it seriously. And even that was like mid to mid 80s. They still took it seriously. They still got emotionally invested in it. Something that really is not uh, present anymore. Well, it was probably one of the toughest and scariest matches I was ever involved in. It was at the county center again. Um, the Volkov and um, the Sheik were trying to win back uh, the title. They had just dropped them to um, Windham and Rotundo. And the place was filled. And in those days, it was 99% blue-collar workers smoking and drinking. You could hardly see the ring when you came out of the locker room to go to the ring. You could hardly see it. It was filled with smoke. It was a very, very cold winter night, uh, and the doors of the county center were open. There were people with American flags out in the street, on the sidewalk, in the doorway, uh, waving the American flags because they felt that these evil, that the evil um, Russian and um, uh, Iranian were going to try to hurt the good old American boys. So um, Volkov and, uh, and the Sheik get in a ring, and they're waving the flags, and he's singing a national anthem. 
And all of a sudden, I see size D, the really big flashlight batteries, going by my head, being tossed from people sitting in the balcony. They were tossing size D flashlight batteries. I was getting hit with canisters of beer. The beer was served with um, in, in, in cups that were like um, plastic, soft plastic. I was hit with two or three canisters of beer in the face and the chest. Um, I told them to get on the other side of the ring with the damn flags or I'm going to get killed. And um, to top it all off, I felt something on my wrestling boot, and I looked down, and there's a dart sticking out of my wrestling boot. Someone in the audience was throwing real darts at the ring. Uh, and the match was supposed to go about 20 minutes, and Wyndham and Rotundo aren't even in a ring at this time. So when they came in a ring, I, I kind of had a meeting of the mind because the, there was trash up to my ankles. I said, maybe we should shorten the match a little bit. Um, I don't know if we're going to be around 20 minutes from now. So they went about five or six minutes. And um, the, the sh let's see, um, Volkov, Volkov picked up um, Rotundo, and Wyndham drop-kicked him, and Volkov fell back, which Rotundo pinned him, and everyone went crazy in the, in the place. Uh, it was so bad, they had to close the beer pavilion, the, the beer-selling uh, booths. They had to close that. They had like three security guards there from the local police uh, who couldn't really keep order. And uh, as soon as the match was over, I left with the with the faces. And um, it was um, it was quite an experience. But everybody in that place was convinced. The blue collar workers and the white collar closet fans were all convinced that what they saw was actually real. It was a bit scary. Absolutely. Dave, um, I don't know if you, uh, this is something we really haven't talked about. Do you, do you watch the current WWE product? Um, and if you do and whatever you know about it, it's obviously so much different than when you refereed. What, what do you think is missing uh, from the current product? Because obviously ratings are way, way down. People, you know, people aren't emotionally invested in wrestling like they used to. I mean, people go to people go to wrestling now to see moves, you know, to see, you know, to see flips, see, you know, the high spots and all that stuff. Back in the day, people came to the to the arena to see Bruno or see, you know, see Ric Flair or whoever it was. What do you think is missing today? Well, first of all, I want to say that I think it's tough to compare yesterday to today in any sport because the athletes today are bigger they're quicker. Um, there, there's a difference there, right there. And also, for example, the product has changed. I mean, look at football. The first Super Bowl um, did not sell out. The first Super Bowl did not um, – it, it had a marching band at halftime. And the game was the primary – uh, the primary focus of everything. Everybody was interested in the game, not not who you had dinner with last night, not who was injured, not not the halftime show. The halftime show, well, right? I, I think today, a lot. I mean, I, I, the last couple. I haven't been to a, show, a live show in quite a while, except for maybe a couple of NEW shows. Um, but I, I, I honestly think a lot of the fans go today because they want to see these people up close and real because. Today, everybody's into the computer games. They're into TV. There's not a lot of socializing among many of the young people. And I think when they go to a WWF show, they're more interested in seeing these superstars up close than they are actually in what's happening in the matches. I mean, one of the shows I went to, 
and I, this had to be about I don't, I don't know maybe nine ten years ago eight nine ten years ago. Um, I it was a time when a lot of the, uh, the, the luchadors were in. I thought I was watching the Flying Walendas. You know, I mean, it was like you know, it, it was all these high spots, or there was uh, General Hospital or a soap opera that they were doing an awful lot of talking and, and setting up things. And I'm not going to say it's better or worse because they do they have drawn over the years many many people, and times change. I mean, you know, it went. There's a much broader crowd today, but I, I'm old school, and of course, I like the characters that they built in the past. I thought the characters that they had were real characters, and I think, for example, uh, with Vince Senior, he would he had he had a great psychological approach. Um, he'd bring in a George Steele, and before George would get to work against Bruno in the Garden, George would beat up mercifully, merciless. All these, uh, what I used to call them, cannon fodders or, or jobbers on television. He'd beat them up, and this guy couldn't be beat by anyone. And then he'd appear at the real, at the live shows, and he'd beat up the B-class wrestlers, the guy that weren't the jobbers but were pretty good. And he'd walk through them, and finally he'd get his shot at Bruno. And and, and the first one would be um, maybe a disqualification. Bruno would get disqualified. The second one would be a, a fake finish, and then they finally get into a cage. And then he'd leave, but he paid his dues in working his way up to those title shots. Uh, and I think that psychology added to getting more interested and involved in the characters. And they would bring in, then they'd bring in the next character. They might bring in um, somebody else who, who looked unbeatable and, and work him up to the um, point of. So, you know, that was part of it. Um, and then. I mean, today, many of the people, I think, also, you know, don't they tape like two shows at once? So you're there for a long time if they're doing two shows. And, 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 and the audience would be there for a long period of time. But again, um, I, I, I think both yesterday and today have their strong points. I think both yesterday and today have their weak points. And uh, I'm just glad to be part of the timeline and certainly they're doing something right because they're drawing phenomenal crowds. They're making – the wrestlers are making phenomenal money. I mean, Lou Albano used to drive a cab when he was wrestling. He used to take my friend to Sunday school on Sunday. So I think it's kind of tough to compare the two. Um, I, and the other thing is you say some of, the, some of the crowds are starting to fall off. I think after a while, when you try to top yourself constantly – topping and topping this and topping this and topping this, you finally get to a point where you can't top anymore, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And maybe maybe they're reaching that point. I don't know. And, of course, nostalgia is big. And you can look back on the old days and with kind of a nostalgic view, and sometimes um, that can cloud your memory, too. They may not have been as great as it was. I mean, I the show I went to, um, in the back room, they had uh, soup to nuts for a uh, buffet. They had Perrier. They had this. They had that. Uh, I used to sit on a cold bench in an arena with a sandwich. We, the, the wrestlers and myself would brown bag it, and we'd um, have a sandwich and maybe a beer or a soda or something before the show. Um, and the other thing is the only people that ever got in the locker rooms 
were wrestlers and referees. Um, it, it looked like half the world was in uh, behind the scenes at, at the WWF show. And again, I'm not knocking it, but I'm saying, uh, again, it was different times. Kayfabe was involved, and you just didn't get into the locker room. So um, I, I don't know. It's, it's tough for me to really compare. I, I don't want to knock any of them because they put their life on the line all the time. There's a certain amount of certain element of danger involved, and my hat goes off to those yesterday sure. uh, and those today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, Dave, as we wrap up, um, I do have one final question. It's actually funny you mentioned the uh, length of the shows. Back when they were still TNA, my wife and I went to a show. Right, they were that was right before their European tour. We had gotten tickets to their pay per view. They they filmed two television shows. The the the, the television show before the pay per view, the pay per view, and then the television show that was going to air after the pay per view, plus the web exclusive stuff. We were there for like six hours. And they were just filming it. It's like, and they would come out in different costumes and different suits and be like, okay, everybody, uh, just a heads up. We're going to talk. We're going to say last week, even though what, you know, just happened because we're filming the show that's going to air next Monday and next Monday. And it's like, oh, okay. But um, I, I got to know from, from the referee standpoint, I've been a wrestling fan for more than 30 years and referees, professional wrestling referees are the most unobservant fragile human beings I've ever seen in my entire life. And I'm wondering if there's, if there's ever a way to, to have a balance between getting lightly tapped and having to lay down for 10 minutes versus some of the obvious, you know, I, I watch, you know, bits and I'm not saying this as a criticism. I'm saying this is, as it's part of the fun as being a fan, you know, you get to yell, turn around, turn around, you, you know, um, where do you balance the believability of, oh, a manager's distracting me or I got poked in the eye so I didn't see something versus some of the, especially today, some of the stuff you see where it's like there's no possible way you didn't just hear that or see that. Well, um, basically what I used to do is to try to add a certain amount of realism to the to the shows, which were, again, the kayfabe period, uh, I, I came up with some. I, I wanted to be like Johnny said, the, the authoritarian figure in a ring, because again, it was kayfabe, which you don't have today, and everybody knows it, that it's all prescribed. But I would do things like if he was punching him, I, I, w- I would I would chastise the good guy or the bad guy and say, look, this ain't boxing. Open up the fist. Or if he was kicking him, I'd say, this ain't football. Stop with the kicking. Or or um, if he was choking him, I'd say, you're choking a man, and he'd go, I'm not choking him. And I'd go, then what are you doing, giving him a throat massage? You know, <laughs> and uh, I, would, I would try to add a certain amount of legitimacy to it. But again, today, I think everyone knows. And then uh, when, I, when I, towards the end of my career, uh, I, I don't know how, how the refs today can, can concentrate on a match and, and, and concentrate on listening to what the back room is telling them. I had enough to try to concentrate on a match and uh, kind of watch where I was working in the ring so I didn't get in their way or... or, or or get hit. I, I, I you know, I, I guess the job of a referee today is probably more difficult because it's not kayfabe, and uh, they're pretty much told what what they should do and and, and shouldn't do, and um, you know, so I guess it's just a little little bit little bit different than when than when I was working, um, and we would also change things in a ring. I mean, there it, it was a certain amount of, I think, 
back in those the early days, I think there was a certain amount of people were more at ease. I mean, for example, I would do Bam Bam Bigelow and Doink the Clown, Ray Lacamilli, the last Doink. I would do them at a fair, and those son of a guns would change the finish on me without telling me. They would they would they would change the finish just for the hell of it. So I'd have to try to figure out what the hell was going on in a ring, and and and, and also. You know, I, I did Jerry Lawler against Mick Foley one night, and Jerry and Mick, and they decided to do the finishing hold of all the top 20 wrestlers of the time in the match. And I had to figure out which was the, uh, which was the final pin, and they wouldn't tell me. Dave, you gotta... <laughs> wow. So it was kind of like a little bit of, um, and a, a, a little bit of, um, more looseness, I guess you might say back then, uh, and a little less taking it serious. But, but again, it, it, the way they're getting paid today, they have to, they, they really have to uh, be on their toes because they could be replaced tomorrow. Uh, I think that the wrestlers back then knew they kind of like, especially if they were on top, weren't going to be replaced tomorrow, and it gave them a little more of an edge to, to, to be a little more relaxed maybe. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Dave, I, we, uh, as we come to the end here, I would love you and Benny um, coordinated this coming. I'd love to coordinate having you come back on because I feel like there's so much. I mean, we're, we're still in the 1980s, and I feel like there's still so much more we could talk about. Um, for those out there, uh, Benny referenced it at the beginning of the show. The book is called Ring Man. It's available on Amazon. And, uh, Dave, you have any uh, final thoughts? Well, uh, the, the last thing I would say is um, I, I've tried to make the book affordable for um, fans. Uh, it, the ebook is five ninety nine, and, and, and the book itself is fourteen ninety nine, and I, I, I couldn't go any lower than that. But basically, I wanted it to be a fan friendly book too, because uh, it's dedicated to fans of all ages and generations. And, and my final thoughts are: without the fans, we were nothing. The wrestlers, myself. They're the ones that make that, that made the business then and still make it now. And I just have the greatest respect for for the fans, and um, I thank them for their um, for for the 32 years they supported myself and the other wrestlers in the ring. And I thank you guys for having me on. Our thank pleasure. you so much yeah. for being here, sir. Great, and I'd love to come back. Absolutely, we'll we'll have to we'll definitely coordinate that. So thank again, you. thank you. Thank you so much for your time, ladies and gentlemen. Dave Dwinell, again, the book available on Amazon is called Ring Man. And plenty of good stories in there about the, the absolutely a great read from from the career of a great official. So for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spasciano. Have a great night, everyone, and as always, happy wrestling.